Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your guest host today, Craig Silverman, and we're going to be talking with Claire Wardle, who is the Executive Director of First Draft, a nonprofit that trains journalists around the world on how to investigate misinformation and disinformation. This podcast is coming to you on the week we launched a brand new edition of the Verification Handbook. This is a book that I first edited in 2014. We had contributors from the BBC, Storyful, and many other news outlets. And six years later, we are publishing the third edition of the handbook. This one is focused on investigating disinformation and media manipulation. Once again, we have some of the very best journalists and researchers in the world doing this work as contributors. And Claire Wardle from First Draft was the contributing editor who worked with me on it. So we're gonna dig in and talk to Claire about this new handbook, about what's changed since 2014 and that first edition that came out, and also about what we're seeing with coronavirus, misinformation and disinformation, and some of the tools that journalists should keep in mind as they're trying to do this work. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Claire. Hey, Claire, thanks for joining us. Hi, Craig. Uh, so this is, uh, this is launch week for the new edition of the Verification Handbook, and you uh, contributed a bunch of things. You did a chapter in the introduction, and you also contributed uh, a chapter about messaging apps. And so I think we'll definitely talk about those two things, but I wanted to start because you're a great person to talk to about a little bit about the history of the verification handbook because you were around in this nerdy scene back in 2014 <laughs> when we published the first one, right? Yeah, it's kind of astonishing to think that it was 2014, but yes, yeah, six years ago. What was what was going on in 2014 in terms of what you were looking at around misinformation, disinformation, verification, those kinds of things? Well, back then we weren't really talking about misinformation or even disinformation. I mean, I remember writing that verification handbook because we were aware that lots of newsrooms were struggling during breaking news events and they needed the tools to understand how to verify a video or image that emerged on Twitter or Facebook uh, during a breaking news event. We'd had Hurricane Sandy in 2012 when I think there was this moment of like, oh, hang on, uh, the newsrooms have these skills. And, and we'd had the Arab Spring. So there was more of an awareness now that you had more of this kind of content circulating that journalists could use. But there was also a growing awareness that sometimes those things were old or they were hoaxed. It was nothing like the, the world that we live in right now. So, there, I mean, there were a few newsrooms that really understood this. Like, for example, the BBC had a user-generated content hub. You know, Andy Carvin was at NPR doing good work. But many newsrooms were relying on the agencies, whether that was Reuters, or like an organization like Storyful that I'd worked with in 2012, 2013. But we had done some research for the Tau Center around that time. And it was clear that most newsrooms still really did not understand how to do this, didn't understand that it was a skill set that they needed to have. Most J schools weren't teaching it. And unfortunately, I'd say that in in the six years that we've had in between these two handbooks, yes, there is more of an awareness. But I mean, we've just trained 900 journalists at the beginning of this year. I mean, there's still many, many journalists who haven't, haven't got the skills necessary to really do the kind of verification work that everybody has to do now on, uh, when they're working with social media. I mean, that is kind of the alarming thing that I find as well, that if we think about 
the content in the 2014 handbook. Um, there was some basic kind of verification guidance overall, but then you would get into things like talking about reverse image search and talking about geolocation of images and talking about, you know, looking at a social media account and how you might determine whether it's authentic or not. And when I go and do training for newsrooms, I still find that the most basics of all these things, like reverse image search, is still not a universally known and used tool in newsrooms. It's crazy. I know. I know. It's, it's, it's crazy. And I mean, I have to say, you know, where have I gone wrong? <laughs> Maybe there's just too many journalists, not enough time. Um, and I think people don't know what they don't know. So if you don't often work with images that come in during a breaking news event or you're not monitoring social media, you wouldn't even think to know this. So now we're in a time where discussions around misinformation and disinformation are, they've been global now for a few years, really for about three, it seems like. And there's, you know, the space has changed so much. I mean, before in 2014, there were a few nerdy people in newsrooms, in academia, who were looking at this and, and interested in this stuff. And now, I mean, it feels like there's an entire kind of disinformation industry in terms of prevention and training and that kind of thing. It's, it's really been a remarkable change, isn't it? Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I remember back in, I think it was around 2012 and Maliki Brown, who's now, you know, famous because he runs the visual investigations unit at the New York Times, wrote a blog post for Storyful about how to verify. And at the time, I think there was probably about 25 people on the planet that were interested in that. Uh, but certainly now, I mean, I call it the disinformation industrial complex. There are conferences, there's so many new projects and initiatives, and there's a lot more funding in the space. And, and that's great. There's more of an awareness of these issues. Um, so that can only be a good thing. Um, so before we dive into that, the, the sort of new handbook piece, and on a really basic level, you know, I keep mentioning misinformation, disinformation. Um, do you want to give us some definitions to maybe work with to, to, as we go through this and, and talk more about the content and also principles for investigating this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, we talk about disinformation as false information that people knowingly share with the idea that they can cause harm. And that might be reputational harm. It might be financial harm. Uh, it might be harm to a democracy, um, but there's a very deliberate element to that. Um, and that is distinct from misinformation, which is also false information, but the people who are sharing it don't know it's false. And so therefore they don't think it's going to cause any harm. And th that distinction is important because if we're thinking about interventions or potential solutions, then we should understand that it is sometimes hard to understand intent. So for example, right now, obviously we're in the middle of the coronavirus, lots of the stuff that's circulating, people are like, is, is anybody behind this? You know, is this, is this a Russian campaign? Um, and it's, it's really difficult to know whether those WhatsApp messages that many of us got a month ago talking about a lockdown in 72 hours and the army was going to come out, like, was that deliberate? Or was that kind of just almost like a game of telephone where everybody's like, have you heard? My brother is a member of this, uh, you know, government initiative or my sister's a nurse. And you know, it's really hard to tell sometimes the intent, but I think there is an awareness now in 2020 of the complexity of this field and that there are people who are deliberately trying to manipulate the media. There are people who are coordinating, you know, inauthentic activities deliberately to push a certain message. So I think the good thing is that there are more eyes on this now. There's more of an awareness. Um, but I think this idea that this intent question that our people are deliberately using these tools, these tools of, you know, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to deliberately sway public opinion or to push 
rumours or falsehoods were the idea of causing harm. That feels very, very different to six years ago. There's some fundamental human behaviours as well that I guess people should keep in mind in this area as well. What are some of the things that come to mind to you that are really important to keep in mind about the way humans process information and share information that really relate to investigating this stuff? Yeah, I think there's there's a sense, those of us who work in the kind of, you know, the verification space that people have a rational relationship to information and they absolutely don't. All of us, doesn't matter who we are, how educated we are, where we are in the political spectrum, all of us are vulnerable to um, sharing misinformation if it taps into our existing worldviews. When we do these kind of investigations, yes, we need to be rigorous, we need to use these tools, we need to be fact-based, but I think when we're understanding how this information spreads we can't just assume that by uh, you know pushing more facts into the ecosystem we're going to slow this down or we need to understand why people are sharing it and sometimes people are sharing it for malicious intent i mean we talk about three motivations of why people do this the first is financial people want you to click on scams or they want you to click on a website for advertising revenue or it could be political purposes that might be foreign interference or it might be on a domestic level that you're trying to uh, you know, sh- shape the way that people are thinking about politicians or, d- or issues or policies. But the last one is kind of social and psychological, which is just some people do this to see if they can get away with it. And that's sometimes the hardest to understand that motivation, but it's there as well. You know, Camille Francois from Graphica, she talks about the ABCs of disinformation, actors, behaviors, content. And if we just focus on verifying the content and we don't look at the actors and their behaviors, then we're missing, t- you know, two thirds of the puzzle. In terms of, of other kind of guidance, when, you know, first draft your organization, you folks are doing a lot of training with newsrooms. What are some of the other kind of principles for approaching investigating disinformation that you folks try to instill in people? So I think the, the biggest lesson for everybody who's working in this space is if you go searching for this, you will find it. There's enough of this stuff out there that you will always find a a campaign that's ongoing or a terrible example of misinformation that's circulating that could cause harm. The challenge for those of us who are doing reporting is when do you do that reporting? And I think it's really important that we have journalists monitoring these spaces. It's really important that we understand which conspiracy theories are bubbling up, that we understand whether or not there's an attempt, like a coordinated attempt to uh, impact trending hashtags. But the challenge is just because you can find it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to report it. So a lot of training we do with journalists is to say, listen, you know, if if you use keywords in these ways, these are, you know, this is a a way you can set up a dashboard so that you can monitor misinformation. However, here are ways that you can think about the criteria for whether or not you should report on it. So we talk about the tipping point and we have kind of five different um, kind of criteria that we use to make that distinction things like you know what kind of engagement is it getting is it moving across platforms has an influencer shared it and that I think is the challenge for all journalists which is there's this um, this kind of instinct uh, instinctive response to well if we shine a light on it that's a positive thing I mean that's the central paradigm of journalism but what does that mean when bad actors are deliberately targeting journalism knowing that that's what their inclination is to do and so when you know that bad actors are hoping that you're going to report on that conspiracy how can you make that decision about whether or not to report and if you report how do you report it what's the headline what's the lead image the advice in the book is incredible for saying this is how you can find stuff 
but don't think that just because you find it, it means that you, you know, the right thing to do is to report it. And that feels counterintuitive for many journalists. Yeah, it does. And it's also, it, it again shows how much things have changed because I can remember back in 2014 and earlier uh, trying to advocate for newsrooms to say, hey, actually, you need to pay attention to the false stuff and potentially guide your audience away from it uh, in this viral environment. And, and the mentality at that point was that, listen, we only report things that are true and accurate. We don't deal with stuff that's false. We just leave the false stuff alone. Yeah. And now it feels like we've almost flipped to the other way where so many newsrooms are aware of the challenge around misinformation and disinformation that they want to be quick to jump and debunk anything they see. And now the risk is that they're so engaged with the false stuff that they may actually be unintentionally propagating it. Yeah. And we have to have a conversation about kind of business models for newsrooms, because in many ways, if you have a headline with the words bots, hacking, Russia, in the headline, you know, it's a very human response to want to click on those kind of stories. And unfortunately, even a debunk will get those stories. I remember the classic Craig, this is very nerdy, but the old video of the eagle swooping into a Canadian park and lifting up a baby. Yes. I think that was from 2012. And I remember at the time, a very large newsroom running that, which we now know is a false video. And at the time I said, oh my goodness, are you so embarrassed that you ran it? And without blinking, the digital editor said, no, because the debunk will probably get twice the traffic. <laughs> And so there is a real challenge here, which is, unfortunately, there, there is a kind of a business model now in debunking, and it does get a lot of page views. And so we have to, we have, to have this conversation, which is, what, what are the long-term consequences of this type of reporting? Uh, does it drive down trust in organizations or democracy or the news media itself? And I don't necessarily think we have the answers there. I mean, I think some of the incentives have gotten a bit better over time, um, I think the uh, the toll that newsrooms pay if they are called out for sort of executing that strategy, I think there's more shame around that yeah, now. Right. Yeah. Uh, and now, of course, we have a global fact-checking industry uh, largely funded by Facebook where there are fact-checkers working in, gosh, I don't know, it's like more than 50 countries now who, uh, you know, who are getting funding from Facebook to knock down stuff specifically that seems to be going viral on Facebook. I mean, I'm, I'm curious on, for you on that thought uh, of, of the kind of fact-checking industry. What are, you know, what, what are some of the good things, and some of the, I don't know, the downsides of suddenly having uh, an explosion in fact-checking, but also having it funded primarily by one of the platforms? Oof, I have many thoughts about this. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's wonderful that there are more people who are aware of this work, who have been provided the skills to do this work. What I, one thing I struggle with is that in order for these, um, the false information to be demoted on Facebook, a fact check has to be published. So going back to our conversation just now about oxygen, a number of fact checking organizations are now have really kind of quadrupled their workload because they get paid per fact check. But what that means is they're then they're now running fact checks on stories that they may previously not have run stories around. And then there is an inherent um, reward in writing a headline that does well on Google because it then drives traffic to your site. So when we talk about an industry, my concern is, yes, it's good that this happens. And I actually think, you know, let's talk about it. Let's demote some of this stuff in Facebook. I'd rather it wasn't taken down, but I do want it, to, you know, I don't want it to be amplified. But I feel like the combination of the funding from Facebook per fact check combined with Google search engine optimization creates an environment where 
all sorts of things are being fact checked and therefore given oxygen that I don't necessarily think is a good thing. I think I think that's probably a perfect time for us to start talking about messaging apps because you did write a chapter for the handbook about investigating messaging apps. So with your chapter, you laid out some of the principles for investigating and monitoring disinformation on messaging apps. What are some of the, the general guidelines that you offer around that? So, I mean, absolutely, there's things like WhatsApp and in other encrypted spaces like Signal or Telegram. Um, and there's also closed Facebook groups. I mean, people use CrowdTangle as a way of understanding what's on Facebook. And we know a lot of this stuff is moving into essentially secret Facebook um, communities. And so on all of this, the, the choices are either, you know, you set up tip lines and you ask your audience to send examples and screenshots of things that they're seeing. And that, of course, has no ethical repercussions. Really, you're getting permission from the person who received it on their phone. The other way you can do this is to join these groups. But that really is a question that every journalist um, has to talk through with their editors, because in many ways, are you going to move into those groups and say, hi, I'm a journalist from BuzzFeed and I'm doing this kind of work. Thanks for having me. But the truth is, many of the kind of groups that disinformation researchers want to be in the, those communities might not want a journalist in those communities. So there are really hard questions here around, do you disclose who you are? Um, some of these groups, for example, on Discord, which is a, you know, a platform that gamers use, but also we have evidence that you know, some disinformation campaigns are coordinated on there. They will ask questions of the journalists and they will ask your views on whether or not you like Jewish people or you know, those kind of, of questions. Like, do you, say, do you answer truthfully? I mean, and what do you do? So there are those kind of questions which all undercover investigations, uh, investigative reporters have to think through. The third way of doing this is to look for links to groups so you can join them in a kind of a computational way. So WhatsApp groups have a distinctive kind of a short code and you can see in other uh, communities, for example, on Facebook, you'll see people put a link to a WhatsApp group being like, if you really care about this, you can join our group over there. And you can essentially scrape those links and then kind of in an automatic fashion, build out a database based on those. And some people call them kind of, you know, public WhatsApp groups or open WhatsApp groups. Well, they're not actually just because you can find the link uh, my argument is that many people in those groups see them as WhatsApp groups, which are encrypted and therefore private. So there are also ethical challenges about whether or not we should do that. It's certainly not representative. So the kind of groups that advertise their open links have got a reason to make those open and public. So I worry a little bit when people say, wow, on WhatsApp, we're seeing a lot of X. Well, it's not on WhatsApp, it's on WhatsApp groups that people can get access to. Many newsrooms have very strong editorial guidelines, but few newsrooms have editorial guidelines that include this kind of advice or even these kind of questions and prompts that people need to be okay with before they do this sort of research. Now, uh, you folks have done a lot of work, particularly on WhatsApp in Brazil. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the takeaways from that and perhaps what you're also seeing with the coronavirus stuff in terms of, you know, the dynamics of how false and misleading information spreads on WhatsApp? In, you know, in the last... 15 years, I think it's YouTube's 15th birthday today, but um, we kind of were in this weird decade where everybody was okay with sharing everything. And in the last two to three years, there's, I would argue, been a kind of a chilling effect on speech because people have realized that there are repercussions. Maybe it might impact the job that you're applying for or the person that you're trying to date or uh, maybe other you know, insurance companies are surveying what you're posting in these public places. So there's been this recognition. And so as a response, we're seeing more people moving into these closed environments. And as you say, many of those environments, you're with people that you either know 
or with people who agree on the topic that you're in this group? Is it an anti-vax group or uh, is it a flat earth group or, um, you know, or you really love Elizabeth Warren? So in those kind of groups, you're with people who you feel an affinity with. You're less likely to be harassed. You feel like everybody agrees with you. And so I think that's partly why we see uh, so much misinformation, because there's less concern about kind of a public shaming or responses to what you might share. And certainly in small groups of, say, family and friends, we see people sharing with the caveat, this probably isn't true, but I love you and I want to make sure you're safe. And so you see people kind of throwing up, like there's no concern about whether it's true or false. They just feel the need to share it. So certainly when we were working in Brazil in the autumn of 2018, it was kind of stunning to see how much content was being shared on WhatsApp. And we now see those same patterns happening in you know, Western Europe or the US or Canada. And I think that's because there's, you know, there's more of an awareness of more people are using these spaces. But the other thing that's pretty surprising, I think, to many people is how many audio messages go viral on WhatsApp, um, voice notes, which are almost impossible to verify because there's absolutely no metadata and there's really no uh, apps or checks or tools that you can use to check audio. Um, and there's, there's less text. I mean, people sometimes send screenshots of text, small numbers of text, but it's not website URLs. People don't really want to click out of WhatsApp. So you see videos, uh, screenshots of small bits of text or audio messages. Um, so it's, it feels very different to the kind of work you would do on public messages on Twitter and Facebook. And I think the coronavirus has uh, meant that many journalists working in places like the US and uh, Western Europe have had to wake up to the challenges of doing work on WhatsApp, which Indian fact checkers and Brazilian journalists have known for much longer. So uh, I want to I talk about some of the good work that you've seen out there. Um, not necessarily it has to be about coronavirus, but when you think about really good investigations into disinformation, into media manipulation, what are some of the ones that come to mind? And, and maybe we can sort of pull one or two apart to just sort of see how they were put together and the kinds of approaches that were used by the journalists or researchers who did them. Yeah, I mean, I think the best research I'm seeing is uh, our researchers who understand that this is a global phenomenon. So I think some of the work that's come out of DFR Lab or the Stanford Internet Observatory who have shown how these networks have emerged in places like North Africa and how connected they all are. I think the first couple of years um, from 2016 onwards, there was this, it was a very US focused conversation. It was very focused on URLs and, you know, what we used to call fake news websites. And I think now there's a recognition that this stuff emerges as memes, uh, emerges in, you know, pretty complex um, networks of sites that unless you're really looking and aware of how this can work globally, um, you, you're going to miss them. And I think the awareness, this is, isn't just Russia, you know, how do we understand how, you know, places like Iran and China are doing this? And also, let's be honest, places like the US. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think that they have been the best investigations I've seen that sort of cross-border investigations of influence. And how do you see them being able to kind of connect the dots uh, between, you know, uh, maybe the actor is based in one country, they're targeting people in another. What seem to be some of the ways um, that researchers and investigators are able to kind of connect those dots together? Yeah, I mean, so in many ways, it's, it's finding problematic examples of pages and then just like being a dog with a bone and not letting go. And so I think some of the best work is when you see people doing automated analyses, but then saying, well, there's something fishy here how can I go in and actually look at, you know, who might be behind this, how the AdSense 
um, kind of Google codes are connected. Um, I think, and some of that is laid out in the book, I think, in a way that anybody can uh, investigate. Uh, there's another great case study about Papua New Guinea, which is just doing some basic Twitter analysis and saying, hmm, hang on, this, there's something dodgy here. And so I think, the, again, the best examples of this don't necessarily come from the most famous disinformation researchers. They come from people who are just, you know, throwing spaghetti at the wall and then saying, hang on, there's something here, and then really doing uh, deeper analyses. Uh, I think a lot of times in this world, people think about very technical approaches. And what really matters in the end is, you know, watching and learning and then spotting things that don't seem right and being willing to invest the time to actually try and figure out what's going on there. 100%. And I think, you know, as we know, Facebook is far from perfect. But, you know, even once you find some things that are not great, going back and looking at the transparency indicators on some of these pages and saying, oh, actually, that was set up in 2014 and the name has changed three times and the admin appears to be somewhere other than the country you would expect. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the great work around the Black Lives Matter page in the US that, you know, I think somebody from CNN tracked down and found out that it was an Australian guy. Um, so I completely agree with you. I think there's this idea of like, oh, I'm not computational or I can't do these incredible visual network analyses. And a lot of this is just old fashioned Sherlock Holmes digging and be like, mm -hmm, there's something, there's something amiss here. Now, let's say you're, you're stuck. You don't have access to all the tools out there, all of the uh, things that are available. And you had to pick just a handful of some of the tools that, that you folks and you personally use on a daily basis. So it's sort of like a desert island tools pick. Um, you've only got a few. What are some of the key tools that you're going to want to have access to? I'm trying to think. I mean, I think in many ways, I mean, Invid, let's just talk about that for a second. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so Invid, which is a tool that was, was created by AFP. And I just, I think it's an astonishing example of, you know, a great journalist with some computational skills um, Denis Tisu, who just said, there's no tools out there that are really have been built for journalists. And he kind of just bootstrapped this tool that is really the only toolbox for journalists who are doing this kind of verification. And over the time, they've really improved the functionality. And it has simple things like a magnifying glass, if you're trying to look at words on a sign, all the way through to some kind of like AI systems that help monitor the comments on a YouTube or another video to help you give clues. So I think that's like one of the best free tools that whenever I do training, it's the one thing I say to everybody, please download it. Um, and I think the, the challenge is that there are some good verification tools out there like Invid or, you know, increasingly uh, reverse image search tools. We have more of them now. But the monitoring, I think doing effective monitoring is, is the piece that's really, really difficult for people to do. Um, without access to a tool like CrowdTangle, just because it's it's becoming harder and harder to do monitoring work on the platforms themselves. Yeah, it's true. And Claire, I wanted to end on just one final, really sticky area um, that I think people are always hungry to be able to attribute particular you know content and particular information operations to a specific actor. You know, uh, is it a nation state? Is you know, is it a uh, profit-oriented grifter. And so this, this thorny issue of attribution is a really big one. And I'd love to just hear from you, you know, we do have a chapter on it in the book, but I'd love to hear from you some of the, the principles and cautions you offer with people when they're investigating, um, they see some, you know, inauthentic activity, and they're trying to figure out who's behind it. I mean, what are, what are the chances that we usually get to 100% of knowing exactly who is behind something? 
Yeah, I mean, this is the $64 million question because ultimately newsrooms want to be able to say in real time who's behind this. And partly because of all of the reporting about the way that Russia meddled, to use that word, in the 2016 US election, it's the kind of go-to explanation of, of anything. Um, similarly, wanting to believe that everything is a bot network when in many times now we see just like really engaged citizens who sit in their bedrooms and click publish multiple times a day. So the problem is, is that people want immediate answers. And the truth is, because anybody can be anyone on the internet, it makes it very difficult to be able to say at any given time that this, this is a, this, who, who is behind this campaign? Because even if you find out that actually the person behind a campaign is living in a basement in Ohio, you can't necessarily say that there isn't a kind of a red thread back to potentially a state actor. And certainly for journalists, it's very difficult to get to these answers, even by talking to the platforms. The platforms either don't want to give up this information or they themselves don't know and don't have enough information. So the problem is, as there's more awareness of kind of state-sanctioned activity, um, those actors have had to become more sophisticated. So it's very, very difficult in real time to have these answers, yet there is a temptation to move in that direction. And there was a story earlier this year around what a really dubious page that said it was called like North Carolina breaking news. It was a Facebook page and people started contacting the admins and the admins sort of replied in what looked like Russian, but then it became clear that somebody was using Google translate. You know, who knew was that Russia? Was that somebody pretending to be Russia? Cause they thought it was funny, you know, and ultimately newsrooms can you know, really have egg on their face if they rush to these conclusions too quickly. So with all the coronavirus misinformation, I'm having journalists ask me, like, who's behind this? And I keep saying, I honestly don't know. Probably in a year and a half's time, we will have some sort of Senate inquiry and all sorts of information will, you know, be, um, be shared. And maybe the platforms will give us more information. Maybe the intelligence community will give us more information. But unfortunately, it's almost impossible to do this kind of attribution in real time. And journalists should be okay with saying and explaining to their audiences that they just can't tell. Um, because uh, it, I think it's one of the biggest problems we have right now. And I think reminding people that it's often not Russians under the bed um, is one of the most important things that we can do in trainings right now. Yeah, it's true. And also, I mean, there's another element here as well where the platforms tend to have the most information of anyone on this stuff. And then there's also intelligence agencies. But we also know that, that these folks make mistakes themselves as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing journalists have to be careful about is there is now a kind of an industry of these new uh, kind of data driven platforms where people will offer a report saying, here's evidence that there was, you know, Russian uh, influence in this particular moment. And as a journalist, it's very easy to take that almost as a press release and be like, well, those guys said it was like, they're very clever with, you know, they've got huge data lakes that they're pulling from Facebook and Twitter. But unless you as a journalist can ask the questions about where did you get the data from? How did you do the analysis? How did you come to these conclusions? You know, how have you double checked and double sourced these? We have to be very careful because there's more and more of these reports out there making these claims. And um, I, I just, in the same way as we have to teach journalists how to read academic research, there is a need to teach journalists how to, um, to actually read this kind of data. And just a very quick plug, um, we worked recently with the Stanford Internet Observatory to create a new website called attribution.news, which goes through all of these questions and tips and techniques to, uh, to understand how to kind of question the data or question sources when they're making these sorts of claims. Yeah, it's a, it's a great resource. I think if people were to read that and combine that with the chapter that we have of a, of a, a case study on attribution, 
in the new verification handbook, uh, people will be really well grounded and also have the appropriate caution to not point the finger that it's Russians every time, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and thank you for your contributions to the handbook and good luck wading through the coronavirus deluge. It's my pleasure. And congratulations on this new edited volume. It really is extraordinarily strong. So it's a great resource and it's much needed. Thank you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. If you enjoyed our conversation with Claire, you can learn more about what First Draft is doing at firstdraftnews.org. And to read that brand new edition of the Verification Handbook, you can go to datajournalism.com. If you like this podcast and you want to subscribe, it's available on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Craig Silverman, and we'll see you next time.